Hello, people. Welcome to Josh's Worst Nightmare Podcast, presented by Denver Horror Collective. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg, surveying the dark landscape of biological horror fiction. This episode, we're being visited by Angela Sylvain. Angela Sylvain is a self-proclaimed cheerful goth who still believes in monsters. Her debut novella, Chopping Spree, an homage to 1980s slasher and mall culture, is available now. Her short fiction has appeared in multiple publications and anthologies, included Places We Fear to Tread and Not All Monsters, a North Dakota girl transplanted to Colorado. She lives with her sweetheart and three creepy cats on the front range of the Rockies. You can find her online, AngelaSylvain.com. Uh, I should mention she's also in Terror at 5280, which is where she came on the scene for me. So that's the Denver Post Bestselling Award winning local horror fiction anthology. I was the lead editor for through uh, Denver Horror Collective back in 2019. And all the stories there are, as I've said on this podcast multiple times, from Colorado authors and all about Colorado scenarios so uh, since then she's been putting out some even more great stuff and i've been following it and i read your the novella chopping spree which we're going to be having for our dhc book cult next month so welcome to my nightmare angela thank you so much for having me very very happy to have you and for every episode, of course, I invite on horror creators, usually authors, to talk about an aspect of biological horror, which I frame however I want to, which is living creatures' vital processes relevant to their writing. So this episode, we're going to tackle an interesting topic. So the idea of slashers as biological horror. So tell me what you're thinking about that, Angela. Yeah, that's right. I don't think most people probably think of slashers as biological horror, but the reason I would put them in that category is because when you think about biological horror, it's usually something that kind of perhaps showcases kind of the body in grotesque or psychologically disturbing ways which slashers definitely do. So when I think about one of the most popular slashers, Halloween, Michael Myers, you know, slits Annie's throat and literally stabs Bob into a door, leaving him hanging there with feet dangling. And he's really showcasing his work and posing the bodies of his victims in a very grotesque and disturbing way. Um, obviously it works well as a cinematic device, but within the story, it also increases the fear of those still alive who see how their friends are displayed, right? So I think that's a good example of how a slasher can really be also a biological horror. Um, additionally, a lot of slashers and, and really all of them by definition, by that classical definition, feature killers who use edge or stabbing weapons. And those kind of weapons really guarantee an up close and personal kill, right? There's, there's a certain amount of gore that's just going to come with that sort of killer. Um, you know, Michael had his butcher knife, Freddie had his glove knife, glove of knives, um, Candyman had his hook. All of those are really intensely personal. And I think they can showcase kind of the gore that happens to the body. Yeah. When they attack. Yeah. 
all that makes perfect sense to me. At first, when the topic was proposed, I was like, well, let's see, this will be interesting. You can pretty much tie anything into biological horror, or at least my version of it, if you try. But I think you make an excellent case for it. And yeah, I'm I'm converted into thinking that slashers are biological horror because I like to, I look at biological horror as, of course, body horror is a component of that. I have a much broader view, but when you're talking about getting into the viscera and the gore, which you make a really good point with the, that kind of weaponry, as opposed to say a handgun or something like that. All right. There's a tiny little hole. Maybe you see brains maybe, but usually you wouldn't necessarily see that, but you slice into somebody or you have Jason with his machete that opens things up. We are going straight <laughs> into the body and uh, yeah, there's there's no question that biological component of that is, is happening because we dwell on it too. There's look at this shit. It's not just a dead person in the corner. It's like we're getting, like you say, up close and personal. So that's a really great, I think that's a really great uh, summation of of one of the ways in which this has absolute parallel. No question. Yeah. I think the other kind of interesting thing to think about, and this is probably true in other kinds of horror too, but in slashers, you also kind of have a destruction of biological beauty. So the victims in slashers are often kind of young and beautiful people at the prime of their lives, you know, innocent and having fun. And so they're sort of the perfect opposite of the killer typically, um, who's usually out for vengeance of some kind, you know, they themselves may not be particularly beautiful biologically. So it's also a good um, kind of dichotomy. It's like the ugly monster attacking these, these people that are sort of the epitome of biological beauty as well. Yeah. Well, talking about physical appearance, certainly what people would consider to be more attractive, less attractive. I think that fits into the biological horror category i think of i think it was a kurt vonnegut story where it takes place in a world where everyone is given a handicap for the thing that they are maybe deemed exceptional in and and i think the very attractive people are made less attractive right i don't remember the specifics i do vaguely remember reading that one too many years ago in high school i went through a kurt vonnegut phase i remember that one that as we one. all do <laughs> yeah. i wonder if he was happy about that he's like here's the good news kurt you're going to be very well read lots of people are going to read your stuff the bad news is it's going to be all 17 year olds but uh, <laughs> no adults read his stuff too but that's uh, true <laughs> yeah but the idea of yeah, beauty, what is deemed beauty, what isn't deemed beauty does resonate very strongly, as you say, in the slasher world. And I mean, I, I didn't find Jason to be unattractive. So I guess it's a matter of taste. But um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, the destruction of the the beauty in a, a revenge thing, like the the bad guy or whatever is not that and and wants to dismantle it. I think that goes into their their tortured psyche and a world in which appearances are very heavily judged. Maybe there is there's overlap and then there's also people have different opinions of what can be appealing. But I think it's no question that the superficial elements, literally skin, is something that ties into that 
of course, it could take us into racism, all sorts of things like mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. Well, and I like how you mentioned revenge, too, because um, I, that's another thing I really like about slashers is the villains or killers actually usually have a little depth, right? It's not just random. It's not typically random serial killers in a true slasher, especially at the start of a franchise. So when you're looking at like Halloween one and Friday the 13th, number one, um, and those kind of films, Nightmare on Elm Street, number one, those villains all have a backstory where they're actually looking for revenge on people that have hurt them. So mm. there's, there's a reason they're coming back. It's not just random people that they're killing. You know, if you look at like Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street, he was burned to death by the parents of the children of the neighborhood. Right. And he then later comes back to exact revenge on the children of those parents, but in their dreams. Um, right. So that's another thing I really like about slashers. Sometimes it gets a little tenuous in the, you know, sequels, but the kind of core concept, I think the villains are really interesting. Like you said, there's more depth to it. Um, right. It's not just random killings necessarily. There's a reason behind it um, and kind of a motivation. So what you're saying is that as long as the murder is done, there's a justification for it. You're okay with it, right? <laughs> I don't know about that, but, um, you know, I, I actually, one of the biggest experts on slashers in my mind is Stephen Graham Jones. And I've read several articles by him and listened to him speak about them. And he says one of the reasons why sometimes we like them is because we do have sort of a desire for justice. Not that in like a balancing of the scales. And so not that ultimately we're going to root for the villain. Um, you know, ultimately we want Freddie to be beaten and, you know, Michael to be beaten. But we sort of still understand why they're trying to like balance the scales and get justice. And right. there's something about that that we like. And it's that kind of story is satisfying in a way. I mean, ultimately, like I said, we're not necessarily rooting for them. Like me personally, one of the things I really like about slashers is the final girl trope, mm. which doesn't necessarily have to be a girl. It can be a girl or a guy right. um, or whomever. But um, I like that because it's this idea of this kind of apparently helpless person, which me as a woman, I have felt that way certainly and felt like I might be an easy victim in some circumstances. Um, and you have this, this girl, this woman who by all rights has no chance, mm -hmm. but somehow by using their own smarts and strength, they're able to win um, and beat the killer in the end, um, right. which I think is really cool. That is one of my favorite tropes is the final girl trope. Um, it's very like empowering and satisfying to see them win in the end. So the question is, does that person need to be what is deemed weaker? So it might be physically weaker. I mean, if the final girl is Arnold Schwarzenegger, I mean, that's, that's okay. Right. But that's just less of a, an arc mm -hmm. from, that's you know, right. That's right. Well, and I think making them more of an underdog it's easier to root for them, right? And you have a little more suspense as well. Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm pretty much gonna assume 
he's going to win in the end. He's probably going to be strong enough to do it. But, you know, an innocent girl who's really not been exposed to much danger in her life and doesn't necessarily on the face of it have the skills needed to stop a monster, but she figures out how to kind of tap a strength within herself to beat them. That I think is probably something most of us can identify with. You know, I think probably all of us have felt weak at some time in some situation. And so it's really gratifying to see them kind of overcome those obstacles and win. Right. So it's like we're both consciously and unconsciously rooting for the underdog final girl, but we're also rooting for the killer in many ways because all of Uh us have been wronged and not saying that everyone has some misogynistic fantasy about murdering women, but you know, maybe some of that's deep in there too, but just the idea of maybe like the cool kids or whoever those Mm -hmm. might be. And, you know, if you look in terms of, well, Freddie was a child molester, not to laugh at as much, maybe, but, (laughs) but, but, you know, then he was burned a lot, but why was he a child molester? He is you know, you're not a healthy individual. Right. If you're, so right. here are these individuals who have been marginalized from society in one way or another through potentially their, I mean, it could be like their biological inferiority if they're particularly mm-hmm. ugly or his brain was obviously messed up if he's attracted to pre-sexual humans. So, you know, great. Everyone's like, great. We're talking about child molestation on the podcast. Well, sorry, if the conversation takes us there, that's where we're going. But so there's that aspect of just yeah. the individual push to the edge of society who then comes back to murder the tribe, which, well, you know, and, yeah. and I think you're right. We don't necessarily, there are a lot of very problematic things we wouldn't want to root for with Freddie, <laughs> but ultimately the parents went outside the law, right? They yeah. didn't let the law do what it should do. Instead, they tortured this person right. who, who was a monster for sure, but they ultimately did something really terrible um, it, to save the children of the neighborhood. And if you look at other examples, like with Michael, um, Michael Myers, you know, his sister should have been looking out for him and she wasn't. Or um, if you look at Jason, you know, he died because the the campers at the camp were too busy partying and having fun to look out for the kids they were supposed to be taking care of. So those kind of stories are kind of like a little more, a little easier to identify with. You can say, okay, it looks like there's consequences. These people sort of did went went the wrong way about doing something or weren't taking the responsibility for the people they should have. Right. And now there's consequences, which is like somewhat satisfying, right? So and and I think that's part of why they're sequels. It's almost like people do sort of want to keep seeing the killer, you know, in slashers. They want to see what happens again and again with Michael Myers coming back. But then also at the end of the movie, they do want to see someone triumph over the monster. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on with that. And with the Jason thing in particular, so a lot of people with Friday the 13th, you know, so it's always like people who are getting laid get killed and and it's thought to be like a Victorian puritanical response to sex is bad. I'm sure some of that's in there, but it's actually maybe not. It's it's these were people who were off, you know, doing things that, you know, are, are perfectly natural. He didn't have access to it. And yet, and they're doing it so much that he literally dies because they're supposed to be watching him. So that really, I think, gives even more of a, 
a reason behind why Jason just kills everyone who's out there in the woods banging. It's like, there's probably some kid drowning somewhere. So in a sense, Jason is probably, how many drowning kids has Jason saved indirectly through Good question. the warnings yeah. of others? So he's probably saved more lives than he's taken. So that could be. And, you know, the other pieces I've always wondered, you know, I'm sure there is some kind of puritanical societal influence there, but also if you were a Jason or you're one of these killers, you're going to try and get people when they're distracted. Right. Sure. And so it's not just about a judgment of what they're doing. It's, it's like, I'm going to hunt them when they aren't paying attention. So it's also just, you know, out of convenience, I would think as well. Yeah. And that's biologically one of the times in which creatures are the most vulnerable when you're eating, drinking, sleeping, and fornicating. You're not, mm-hmm. which is why in nature, it usually takes like four seconds. <laughs> like they're not spending <laughs> 40 minutes of foreplay in the, in the, the veldt. So yeah, but that, yeah, that's tell people in slasher movies, they need to like chop, chop with up. it, you know, finish, finish up. But yeah. And I think also <laughs> part of it is it's obviously a spectacle and, yeah, and all of that, and so that makes, makes it easy. But yeah, I'm sure it's all the above, but I, I mean, I wouldn't overestimate the amount of thinking that went on in some of the slasher films. I don't know if every scene is a societal critique. Probably not. <laughs> but but some, but I'm sure all of the above, all of the above is there. And yeah, with Freddie. So, all right, they want to trap him, stop him from killing the children or molesting. Obviously, g- good on them, but. They killed him. Okay, even that, okay, you want to make him gone. You don't trust the court system. But the torturing of it, that was revenge. That was not a let's stop this. It's like let's use our understandable pain and, and suffering and torment, but then make ourselves kind of a bit monstrous as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's very, very, very deep. I mean, it is. It, it is deep. It, it can be. So another thing you wrote about in your notes to me was just uh, the final girl being innocent, virginal. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I think traditionally that's the case, right? If you look at sort of the golden age of slashers, which was kind of the late seventies into through to eighties, that sort of was the trope, um, which is fine. But I think what I like most about modern slashers is that, we're kind of seeing a twist on that. Um, I mean, I've always liked that final girl trope because they weren't damsels damsels in distress. So it was already sort of a good move. They were able to kind of, for the most part, save themselves, maybe with a little help, Um, but they were much more empowered than maybe the women we saw in film before them. But nowadays it's even taken further. So when you look at modern slashers and even in fiction in books, um, you know, I mentioned Stephen Graham Jones, his recent book, My Heart is a Chainsaw is amazing. It's a really interesting twist on what the final girl looks like. And it gets completely away from that innocent virginal trope. Mm. And it's really well done. I won't spoil it. Um, the same is true with the final girl support group by Grady Hendrix, which looks at sort of the aftermath for final girls. So what happens after they go through this trauma and how can they kind of get back their power and stop 
being the victim that's perpetually running from these killers who keep trying to pursue them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting uh, that people are twisting that around a little bit and getting rid of that innocent virginal thing. Um, that's yeah. actually something I tried to do in Chopping Spree, my novella, was to look at how I could spin that a little bit because I do love slashers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also love the 80s. They were my formative years, mm-hmm. which is why I wrote a slasher that takes place in a mall. Um, but I wanted to do something a little bit different with the main character, Penny. And she appears at first as if she's kind of your typical innocent little bit spoiled final girl but the ending is not what you'd expect for her at all mm-hmm. and additionally the killer who is introduced as this man in a wolf mask is also not the villain you'd expect so I tried to kind of twist both of those tropes so that the final girl doesn't end up where you think she would and the villain also isn't who you think he would be yeah I thought that was very effective and I enjoyed it a lot it's definitely a okay. I I consumed it pretty quickly and yeah it it has both the nod to the old school slasher but it also brings a lot of modern issues and just a new take on things so I definitely recommend it and really really enjoyed that I'm looking forward to talking about that more in depth on the the book cult thing and yeah so but so the final girl thing and mentioned oh it could be could be a man the question yeah. is is there a reason for the final human typically being a woman uh, typically, you know, we, we don't have a lot of final elderly women. Um, we, we, we don't. And, you know, so there can be, of course, be the idea of like, well, let's, this is a most exploitable and in film, like that's mm-hmm. a lot of, you're looking at, you know, a lady. And so they're like, here, let's give them a pretty lady and then more people will buy tickets. So a lot of art is actually just commerce. So there's that, but do you think there's, there's other, there are other reasons why that is typically the choice? Well, I think, you know, this is just my, my sort of off the cuff thoughts on it, but I think it works better for it to be someone you wouldn't expect, right? Hmm. So if it's going to be that you wouldn't expect to be able to win in the end necessarily and beat the monster. So say in in the setting of like a group of high school kids, you know, the the fit football player, you're typically going to expect he would be more likely to beat the monster, right? Yeah. Um, But the the woman is not typically going to occupy that role. So... I think that's part of it is the one you wouldn't expect necessarily wins in the end, which is why I say it doesn't necessarily have to be a woman. I think it, you know, to work in that context of that trope, it probably just has to be someone you wouldn't expect to win who maybe doesn't have everything going for them. And it's kind of a long shot that I think kind of fits the trope. Right. So not somebody who's a weapons expert and, Mm -hmm. There are some funny things in some films. I can't think of the name right now, but it seems like it's starting out, you know, zombies are there. And then the dude, the dashing dude, he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. And then he dies immediately. And yeah. uh, I, I love that. Cause you're like, oh, well, this is going to be the hero. And it's like, no, he's instantly. Uh-huh. So that's pretty clever. So, so they've definitely tried that, but yeah, I mean, t- typically we would think of 
most women, not all women, that's for sure, but most women less good at physically fighting, you know, just because of the reality of upper body strength. Mm-hmm. Obviously, an MMA woman is going to beat the hell out of, uh, you know, your your average dude. But, uh, you know, that that's certainly a component. And I wonder also if it's just throughout, we got to have empathy for the character. And, and we do have empathy for men and stuff like that. But I, I think I think maybe the empathy element of, oh, I don't want instinctively, I don't want a woman to get hurt you know, like, let's yeah. open the door for a woman. I don't want women in fighting in wars. There can be an element, of course, of control of women there. It could be some elements of misogyny, but I think there's also a biological and societal drive to protect, protect the women. Right. Yeah. Well, and especially, you know, a lot of slashers use teenagers. Right. And so that is a particularly vulnerable time, right? Those women really aren't even old enough yet to kind of know the ways of the world. And, um, have some of those experiences that might make them a little more capable of defending themselves. Um, so I think they are at a particularly vulnerable time, probably a time when they are overconfident and like, you know, maybe um, don't realize the danger outside of them. Mm-hmm. They don't, they haven't had to confront reality yet necessarily. So they're particularly vulnerable at that right. age and time. Right. And I wonder if there is some either undercurrent or frankly, just current of just sexual tension. So we have Mm -hmm. typically, you know, at least for like heterosexually here, the, the male coming with a phallic object for the fertile, newly fertile female there. But yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. And of course, most things in the past tend to be like, well, we're just going to assume this is a heterosexual kind of thing these days where society seems more open to understanding the diversity of that out there there's no reason why that sexual component can't be played with in in different ways oh absolutely and like you said previously i think it's about power right so it really the only thing you really need is someone with power who maybe wants revenge (laughs) and someone that doesn't have power Mm -hmm. who is maybe weaker but ultimately inside of them has the tools and the strength to right you know, win in the end. That's really, I think, the all you need for the dynamic of a slasher. And I would love to see more different takes using that um, related to gender roles and just everything else. I, it's really a story that I think works really well in a lot of contexts. Right. Well, yeah, the power component can be looked at in many different ways. Obviously, some monster coming after some teenager, there's a power difference there. But if that if the Jason is coming from kind of like the redneck nothing family there, and then the camp counselors coming from that wealthy, yeah, she's got a better life than, than he does. And I don't want, let me just think for a second before I say anything about your book, there's an element of that and that gives nothing away. (laughs) So there's, there's an element playing into that a little bit there. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, um, you know, Uh, that's what I like about Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween was that it really took a completely different look at the life of, of the killer. So it actually shows you his childhood and all the things that kind of happened to make him the way he was. So you understand a lot more about the background of where this person came from. Um, Not that that makes their actions. Okay. 
but it does make you identify a little bit more with their background right. and realize it's not as simple as just a, just a monster. They're right. really a human who became what they were as a result of a lot of things that happened to them. Right. Well, our society, we, we create these folks and sometimes they are biological abnormalities. I think the vast majority of horrific violence does happen from people who are not right. You know, they're, they're typically men, but they're not just, oh, it's men. It's like, no, they're, these are deviants. And, but our society to a certain degree can also create them. Like when I was researching Charlie Manson stuff, part of me is like society created this, this guy, like, absolutely. and then we actually find out that there might've been some governmental interventions to get him to do certain things to make the whole counterculture look bad. And they're like, well, then we literally created him, but uh, who's to say? Yeah. His history is really interesting and, and very sad. You know, he was absolutely a monster who ruined lives and, you know, corrupted a lot of young people, but you know, what happened to him as a child was just horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that with Charlie Manson. But so in, in to finish up here, I just want to ask a few things about, so like actual blood and gore now. So I, myself, I'm neither super repelled by or drawn to, like, I'm not actually a giant slasher fan just for, you know, the blood and gore, like, and sometimes it can be like a little much, but I, I got a pretty strong stomach. So I'm sort of in the middle there in real life. I've actually been in situations where I've helped out at car crashes because I have <laughs> wilderness first responder training, but I, I went there and uh, I could see the blood and for the most part and be fine. I don't really like watching my old blood being drawn, but I don't get lightheaded. Um, I do have this weird thing that I think I've said it on this podcast before, but it's, I call it anal empathy and it's a weird thing. And I, I want to find one other person in the world who has it. When I see like a cut on somebody, like there's an area, it's not just my ass, but it, it's like, I know I'm getting graphic. It's sort of like the area be in my rear thighs, upper rear thighs. I feel like a flush of heat. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck that is, but <laughs> this isn't about me. So I wanted to, so what is your take just on blood and guts and gore, both in film in terms of watching it and just in real life? What is your thoughts? Well, you know, I like, I like the classic amount of gore in flashers. So I like that 80s style gore where you, you see something, but you actually don't see the most visceral uh, objectification of the body. I'm not a fan of what people refer to as torture porn that that's not the kind of horror that I watch. I don't want to watch people being disemboweled just for the sake of it. To me, that's not appealing. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I like about those classic slashers is you get a hint of it and there is some gore, but it's not necessarily gratuitous in my opinion, what I would define as gratuitous. Um, In real life, I definitely am probably more sensitive to like blood and gore because, because it's real. Right. I'm also not someone who passes out when I get my blood drawn or anything like that, but, and I am fascinated by some of those things, but I remember I actually have a friend who's a death investigator who offered to take me on a tour of the morgue where she works. And so she took me on a tour and was showing me various things like where they do the autopsies and the jars, they keep the little bits of the body parts in like all the organs and everything. And she offered to take me into the freezer where they store the bodies. And I like took like one step in there and saw the body bags and it smelled the smell. 
Mm. And she was like, do you want me to unzip one of these? And I said, no. I was like, I, I think I've reached my limit. I'm, I'm going to pass. <laughs> yeah. I'd say good no. choice. I, I would be in a similar situation. I actually took a tour of a crematorium by accident. I thought that I didn't think that what was happening. And, and that alone was just disturbing enough. So yeah, seeing actual dead bodies, like if I have to in real life and they come across like, okay, but like, I'm not going to yeah. fight that into my life either. No fiction <laughs> is easier. <laughs> so you're, so you have a, a sensitivity, not, not an abnormal sensitivity and not a desensitivity. It seems like you're about in the middle there. I'd say, yeah, I think so. So if people are trying to psychoanalyze it, oh, she's, she's a sociopath. She doesn't care. No. Or like, oh, she's been so traumatized by blood that she has to process all of it. It doesn't seem to be either of those are happening. You're just a normal person who writes. Hopefully, this if there's stuff. any psychologists listening, <laughs> you know, hopefully I fall right in that middle range of the healthy horror fan. <laughs> well, I think there is an element of if we get this stuff out of our system, I think we end up becoming more balanced people. And I, I, I find horror people to be some of the friendliest and at least yeah. on the surface, most well-balanced, maybe because we know how, how to hide our, our darkness so well, but. Well, knows? I think if nothing else, you know, they say watching horror is cathartic, right? It allows you to kind of confront your fears and deal with those things that cause you anxiety in a safe environment. You know, it's fake. Right. And so it, you know, that is actually healthy. Um, and I, I, I agree with you. It's, a lot of horror writers I know are really lovely people. You know, I, I refer to myself as a cheerful goth. Mm-hmm. I'm actually very happy, cheerful person in life. I just happen to really like dark, spooky things. Um, and that's okay. I, me too. <laughs> I like to, to find the, the shadow in the light and the light in the shadow is the way I, I frame it. I think that's I a good it. thing. So what are you working on now? And remind folks, I will link to stuff, but remind folks where they can find your work. Sure. So you can find my work. I have links to everything at my website, which is angelasylvain.com. And I have a story that just released called Blood is Thicker, which is in a collection called What One Wouldn't Do. And that's about two sisters who experiment with the occult to save their failing art gallery. So that just came out. And then I also have a story called Obsidian coming out at the end of this month and October 30th in a collection called This Is Not a Horror Story. And that story was inspired by, um, I started thinking about what if you had someone whose skin peels like an eggshell? So I'll give you that. Um, And then I've also been experimenting with dark poetry lately, and I'll have two poems coming out soon, Strange Bedfellows in the collection Under Her Skin and Last Meal in the collection Monstrosities. Awesome. Well, that's great. And I look forward to that. And I'm so glad you could make it. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for taking a trip with me through Josh's Worst Nightmare, where I, Josh Schlossberg, survey the dark landscape of biological horror fiction presented by Denver Horror Collective. If you don't want to miss any of the great, and sometimes disturbing, weekly episodes I've got planned for you, be sure to subscribe to Josh's Worst Nightmare on a variety of podcast platforms. You can also sign up for Josh's Worst Nightmare e-newsletter at joshsworstnightmare.com where I share a whole squirming mess of bio-horror, 
including my infamous haiku horror reviews and my latest dark scribblings. Speaking of which, if you haven't already picked up a copy of my cosmic biological folk horror novella, Moline, from D&T Publishing, you can find a copy of the paperback, hardcover, or ebook at Amazon, Godless.com, or Josh'sWorstNightmare.com. Yours darkly, Josh Schlossberg.